Coming up on the Shelly Irwin Show podcast today, the founder of Restaurant Partners, Jeff Lobdell, now takes on a national role. We get the details. We discuss the lost stories of the last captives of the American slave trade with author Hannah Durkin. We talk to guests from Foster Moore about whether or not there is a foster care crisis. We talk about the book Go Multisport, about adding fun, challenge, and exploration to your world for mental health. And the West Michigan Symphony welcomes violinist Chi Yun to the stage, and we get the preview of that performance. Well, I bet you, the listener, like to eat. And eating out, well, I hope, and I hope my next guest agrees, is back. Let's talk to Jeff Lobdell. He's been here before. He'll be here again. President and founder of Restaurant Partners, adding another hat to his list of things he does. Jeff, always a pleasure. Thanks, Shelley. I appreciate coming on with you here. I was just, uh, uh, I'll give you a plug, just at your Sundance last week, had good service. I wish I could remember your uh, my server's name. I'll give her a plug, but uh, I had myself a, a cheese omelet with uh, uh, little those little hash, uh, those little spuds. Oh, yeah. Walked away happy. They always love it when you come down to visit them. You're one of their favorites every time you come over. I that. Uh, I uh, get the service, and of course, that's just one of the many under your leadership of restaurant partners. Uh, obviously, we can talk uh, all things uh, food, all of our conversation, but Jeff, uh, you do have a new hat that you're wearing. Before we get there, tell me about why Restaurant Partners is important to talk about. Thank you. Well, um, Restaurant Partners Management, our website is 4gr8food, using letters and numbers, 4greatfood.com. We have uh, 21 restaurant locations and two hotels. Uh, 15 of those restaurant locations are here in Grand Rapids, six are in Traverse City, and the Sugar Beach and Grand Beach Hotel Resorts are in Traverse City. So, uh, Do some road tripping. Yeah. <laughs> what got you into this business? Well, I kind of followed in my dad's footsteps. He was a fast food franchisee in Traverse City, Michigan, where I grew up and uh, worked for somebody who worked for him. And I said, you know what, I, may, I didn't know if I wanted to do it or not. And then I worked at a hotel and conference center and they... They made me employee of the month when I was about 17 years old. And I said, you know what, I'm going to follow my dad's footsteps and go to Michigan State and study uh, hospitality business there. Oh, you did uh, follow your <clears throat> journey. Yeah. Jeff, are, are we back in the restaurant? Uh, restaurants are doing well. I think uh, Grand Rapids and Traverse City both have a very vibrant uh, food and beverage uh, industry and and uh, things are going well. I, w- I was just mentioning that it was we're coming up on the three year anniversary mark. I think it was February sixteenth or seventeenth of twenty twenty one when the dining rooms um, reopened after the pandemic. So we're trying to put all that the scars of that in the rearview mirror and and just keep moving on. Well, and you keep moving on. I introduce you now as the chair of the National Restaurant Association for your 35 years of ownership and leadership in the hospitality industry. How big of a deal is this? Thanks. Yeah, I'm honored to be uh, uh, the chairman of the board of the National Restaurant Association. I've served on that board for 10 years now and proud to advocate uh, on behalf of all restaurants uh, across the country and their staff and their guests. You know, there are a million restaurants in the United States, and they're hoping that our sales will hit $1.1 trillion for all these restaurants, which would be a new record. And we have 15 million food service employees in the country. Thank you for that. Uh, so as chair, uh, the buck stops here often. Uh, what uh, what are you managing when it comes to those who gather with the National Restaurant Association? Sure. We're really... Um, 
some of the things we're at, well, of course, the National Restaurant Association is very big on training and food safety. Uh, our Serve Safe product is available all across the country. Uh, we use that in all of my restaurants, including Beltline Bar, Sundance Grill, Omelet Shop, Bagel Beanery, Grand Coney, Red Geranium Restaurants, Flapjack Shack, Real Food Cafe, Noble Restaurant, Pete's Tavern, I could go on. We, we love their training products, so that's number one. But number two, we like to advocate. Uh, we're working hard now on the Credit Card Competition Act to make sure the, the cost of using credit cards um, is that there's a duopoly right now between Visa and MasterCard. We'd like to have more competition in there, that which we think will bring the prices of credit card processing down. Um, we're also advocating on behalf of restaurants and areas throughout the country to maintain the tip credit. So that's where the servers make a lower sub-minimum wage, but then they make tips. So they're always guaranteed at least minimum wage. If they have a snowstorm, road construction, the, the, the company they work for will, no matter what, pay them minimum wage. But servers really make $27 to $29 and more, and they like their jobs. They like their flexibility. Uh, it works well for everyone right now. We're trying to make sure that uh, that status quo that works for everybody continues. That's another thing we're big about. I was going to certainly ask how much do tips matter, and yes. uh, obviously they do. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yep, it's uh, important. Uh, you know, the, the tips that the servers make uh, help them uh, raise their families, put their kids through school. And uh, it also, with that sub-minimum wage, allows restaurants to operate in a economical fashion in which they can have food service prices that are um, uh, and menu prices that are uh, palatable for the guests that are coming in. Jeff Lobdell with us again, President, Restaurant Partners Management. That's here in our own backyard, our own state, and of course now wearing the hat of chair for the National Restaurant Association. There is, um, let's see, my notes tell me there is an actually a largest trade show, which is the National Restaurant Association show. That must be kind of fun. Sure, that happens in May every year in Chicago. That's uh, one of the biggest shows in the world, so the entire town fills up and McCormick Place has every one of their rooms filled with vendors whether it's food products or new technology for restaurants or training or anything you can think of uh, new patio furniture um, it's all on display in Chicago at our big show every year that will come back once our summer is here we'll be sitting outside uh, there is a unique career building high school program uh, underneath the association's arm yes the the um, they have uh, the Serve Safe is the training, but they have um, N R A E F. Yep, the, the Pro Start. Yeah, yeah. Pro Start uh, Educational Foundation, and we had one of the teams from Michigan was a national champion this year, so they did real well. But they have uh, winners in either culinary or management. Uh, I think there's over 500 schools across the country that have Pro Start programs. And most all of the states compete, and they send a winner each year to nationals, and um, they compete for management skills and culinary skills. What do you want from, uh, from your guests when they visit one of your restaurants? Uh, what, uh, how should we be well, uh, working with hand-in-hand -hand your service? Well, uh, we love our guests. Without our guests, we wouldn't have our businesses or our jobs, and uh, they mean the world to us, so... It's our job to take great care of our guests. You know, restaurants are more than just places that you go to get a happy hour or a good breakfast or a nice meal. They're community gathering places. You go there in times of celebration. You go there if your your family's troubled and you want a big place to meet and something's going on. 
Um, people go there for, you know, a few days ago, the Super Bowl or, and or, um, you know, they'll go there if there's elections and all kinds of stuff and rub elbows with everyone else. I think restaurants are a very important part of fabric of the community and they're great gathering places. So the guests are very appreciated. Yes. And of course, the restaurant industry has provided more than 60 percent of the adult workforce in this country uh, with skills. I mean, skills add to their value in the professional world here, I see. For sure, yeah. Um, two out of three Americans at one point in time worked in a restaurant, and one out of three Americans uh, had it as their first job. As I mentioned earlier, 15 million uh, people in our country, which makes up currently 10% of our entire country's workforce, are working in hospitality. So they're important jobs. What do you look forward to uh, adding to, uh, subtracting from, when it comes to your new role as chair of the National Restaurant Association, Jeff? Well, the restaurant industry has been very good to me and my family. I kind of fell into a niche of acquiring restaurants from retiring restaurateurs, a lot of staple brands that have been here in in, Tra in, in Grand Rapids and Traverse City. Uh, I have family that's in the fast food business and family that's in the brewery business. And so I'm I'm I, I my mantra has been I'm advocating for all families, not just my family, which the industry has been very good to, but also for all the families that work in the industry and dine in the industry. Um, I want to make sure we have uh, safe workplaces. I want to make sure that uh, the businesses are strong and healthy and, and that people are well-trained and advocating for everybody. All right. How do we find out more information in general about you and your work, Jeff? Yeah, go to fourgreatfood.com. That's the number four, the letters G-R, the number eight, F-O-O-D.com is all of our great sites. We have some really good clips about what great jobs there are in the hospitality industry. It's about time I get back to Beltline Bar. I think I'll, I'll do that this week. I'd love to meet you there for lunch. <laughs> Let's do it, Jeff. Thank you for your leadership. Uh, of course, adding another hat, a very important one, and representing West Michigan as the chair of the National Restaurant Association. Thank you. Thank you, Shelley. Let's be blunt with the title by my next guest, The Survivors of the Clotilda, The Lost Stories of the Last Captives of the American Slave Trade, an important conversation we are to have. I bring you on author Hannah Durkin. Good morning to you, Hannah. Good morning. Appreciate you and talking to you, as they often say, across the pond, living in southeast and the southeast of England. Extensive resume you certainly have, and always good to uh, talk to those who have an interest. You, a, a doctor historian specializing in transatlantic slavery and African diasporic art and culture. I want to get right into our conversation, Ms. Durkin. Uh, tell me about Clotilda. So, the Clotilda was, as far as we can tell, the last slave ship to, to land in the United States and to, um, to traffic people um, into the United States of America. And this will happen, so the transatlantic slave trade, or the United States bans its slave trade in 1808 um, and declares it piracy in 1820, which means it's a, it's a capital crime, you can be executed for it. Um, but the Clotilda actually sails across the Atlantic in 1860, it lands in Mobile Bay with with um, just over 100 ch children and very young people um, mm. in July 1860, almost nine months to the day before the Civil War begins. My notes tell me the last of its survivors 
lived well into the 20th century, and were these the, the last witnesses to the final act of a terrible and significant period in world history, Hannah? Yes. So, the, I mean, the, so the transatlantic slave trade continues even longer. So um, in Cuba, um, the Cuban trade probably continues well into the 1870s. Um, but this is the last, uh, the last U.S. stage ship. So the last of its survivors, Matilda McCreer, was just two years old when she was kidnapped with her mother and three sisters and trafficked across the Atlantic. Her two brothers were left behind and never seen again. And Matilda McCreer lived until January 1940. And I was actually um, hanging out with her grandson. He was taking me on a tour of mm. Selma, which is where she died. And we actually drove past the house that she died in. Um, which is still standing and still in a very good condition, actually. Yes. But it brings home just how recent that history was that, you know, her grandson is, um, you know, is, is well and living in Selma. Yes, you, of course, uh, the last Clotilda survivors to be discovered were by you uh, yourself in 2019, 2020, only 26 known at this time. Tell me more, uh, uh, tell me more a story of, of uh, yet another survivor. Yeah, so another survivor whose story really stood out to me was um, a woman named Booja Moore. And she was actually, unlike most of the other Clotilda survivors, she was a grown woman when she was kidnapped and trafficked across the Atlantic. She actually had three young children, including a baby, and they were all left behind on the West African coast. And she lived for another 70 years without her children. But she was sent to, well, just outside Montgomery. And when she secured her freedom, she determinedly travelled into Montgomery and acted as, as she would have done back home. So she would have been a Yoruban tradeswoman. So she would have made a private income trading. Um, this, was her, this would have been a daily occupation back home. And what she's doing in, from the 1870s up to 1925, when she's too ill after that point, she lived until 1930, but she is foraging wares around her home. She's catching the segregated train into the hop of Montgomery and she's selling her wares along Dexter Avenue, which is not only where the um, uh, state capitol building is, which is the first capital of the Confederacy, of course, but it's also where Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a bus mm. to a white man. Your work establishes, uh, it's kind of an off-the-cuff question, concrete connections between the Clotilda survivors and the quilters of G's Bend for the first time. Why is this important to discuss? Well, this is really important because, I mean, the quilting community of G's Bend yeah. is, has in recent years been recognized as a, one of the United States' you know, most important artistic communities. So the G's Bend quilts are Quilters are famous for their sort of quite idiosyncratic quilting patterns, their blend of bright colours and abstract shapes. Um, they've been likened for, for the past couple of decades to West African strip weaving. And so they were potentially seen as evidence of survival, you know, West African survival in the United States of America. And there have been rumours that at least one Clotilda survival was sent to G's Bend. Oh, actually, no, she ended up in G's Bend in the 1890s, more precisely. But I found evidence that there were quite a lot of Clotilda survivors living in and around G's Bend, including actually Matilda McCreer, the last Clotilda survivor. So we've got this really strong evidence that, I mean, the community that it came from, this um, this Yoruban town in, in 
present-day Oyo state in Nigeria. Um, the Oyo is, was famous, or, or was or, or women of Oyo were renowned for their strip feeding traditions. So these these connections are very very striking indeed. And we know that, um, or we know now because of the book that some of the people from this community also managed to find their way south to Mobile to to the large community mm. of Clotilda survivors um, living in Mobile. Yes, Mobile, Alabama, beautiful area. Hannah Durkin with us, the survivors of the of the of the Clotilda, the lost stories of the last captives of the American slave trade. Does does this also um, your good work uh, present this new evidence that the slave trade ended in the 1870s, not 1867, as historians continue to claim? Yes. Yeah, so, um, so there's certainly questions about whether. A slave ship, you know, successfully disembarks captives. Um, but certainly, there's, you know, there are there are slave traders still in Weeder, Benin, present-day Benin, which is where the Clotilda captives were were um, basically held and, and uh, sent across the Atlantic. So there's lots of evidence to show that there was an active slave trading community well into the 1870s. What's another important point from your work? Another important point, um, and perhaps we touched on this a little bit, but maybe these civil rights connections. So um, Matilda McCrea, um, in December 1931, so about eight years before her death, she well, she travels, first of all, to meet um, a fellow Clotilda survivor in Mobile, the first time that she's actually been back to the site of the Crusaders landing since she was two years old. But when she returns to the um, the estate just out, well, 15 miles outside Selma that she's living in this time, this Cotton estate that she's worked in her whole life, she then walks 15 miles from that estate to the heart, well, to, to Selma, to Dallas County Courthouse, to, to basically ask for reparations for her kidnapping and enslavement. And of course, the white judge turns her away. But this courthouse is the very same courthouse where um, Selma voting rights campaigners gather at the start of the you know, Selma voting rights campaign in the um, in eighteen uh, in 1965, which of course triggers the you know, Selma to Montgomery marches and the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Another Clotilda survivor knew Amelia Boynton Robinson who led this 30-year voting rights campaign in, um, in and around Selma. And she's the woman who invites Dr. Martin Luther King to Selma, which could lead to the Selma to Montgomery marches. Um, and Bujan Moore, um, the woman who, was, uh, who lost her children in, at Weida, um, she probably knew E.D. Nixon, who, was the, um, who first led the Montgomery bus boycott um, before um, Dr. Martin Luther King took over. Mm. Um, so there are lots of these connections, and their descendants as well were involved in the civil rights movement. Matilda McCrea's grandson was arrested um, during the civil rights movement. Thank you for sharing the stories and your research and continued passion. passion. Hannah Durkin, the survivors of the clo- of the cloak Tilda, how do we find out more information? Where can we find your book? Yes, yeah, so my book is available at all good bookshops. Um, and, of course, if you want to support your um, independent bookshop, you can go to bookshop.org. Um, but all HarperCollins' website lists all the, you know, all the major stockets of my book. Yes. Many praises 
including Kirkus Reviews, A Welcome History of Defiance and Survival. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you. There's a foster care crisis. We'll talk about it. An urgent need for supportive workplaces to empower potential foster parents. Let's get into this conversation. Foster More Leadership Team, you, Kristen Pratt, the representative to talk about this initiative uh, and more. Good morning to you, Kristen. Hi, Shelley. Thanks so much for having me. Tell me about Foster More. Foster Moore is a national organization, and our mission at Foster Moore is to shift the narrative about youth in foster care in order to move the needle um, for outcomes for, for youth in foster care. Um, there are about 400,000 children in foster care in America on any given day. This is really an issue that um, we need to be talking about and impacts all of us in this country. Is it an issue that we call a crisis? It is. It is a crisis, um, like I said, about 400,000 in, uh, mm. in the United States, about 30% of these youth in foster care report experiencing homelessness at some point, and about one out of five who've been in the child welfare system have experienced incarceration. So we really need to support these youth so that they can overcome these obstacles, um, <clears throat> and, and we're trying to do that in a variety of ways at Fostermore. What did your research find was a significant, we'll say, barrier that prevents many well-intentioned individuals and families, well, from stepping forward to become foster parents, Kristen? Yeah, so as part of the work we do, we try to gauge attitudes about um, youth in foster care, and or like I said earlier, in order to kind of move the needle on people's perceptions and, and hopefully improve outcomes. And one of the things we found is that... <clears throat> people often say that they can't get the time off work that they need to become a foster parent, that that's an obstacle for them to becoming a foster parent. Um, so we wanted to see how we could address that. Um, and we started talking to businesses and realized that not a lot of businesses do give paid time off for foster care, even though they sometimes have the paid time off for birth of a child or adoption, foster care was, was something that was often overlooked. Let's talk about what has inspired then Foster More to develop the Foster Care Friendly Workplace Initiative. Tell us more. Yes, we want to make sure that those people that want to become foster parents are able to have that paid time off to be able to bond with a child who, by definition, has experienced some trauma. And also, the time a child is placed in a home, there are certain things, like I said, beyond the bonding experience, which, of course, is most most important, the child has to be enrolled in new school. They may have doctor's appointments, therapy appointments that they need um, to have taken care of at the time that they're placed. We want to make sure that businesses are accommodating those um, those folks that want to become foster parents. And, you know, it's only statistically about 1% of employees will become foster parents. So this makes this a low cost for businesses, but, you know, life-changing um, benefit for those parents and especially the youth that are, are going to benefit from from that time off. And of course, just to follow up, uh, Foster More, you envision this initiative impacting both potential foster parents and obviously a whole community? Exactly. Um, like we said, there's really a crisis in America. There's a, there's a lack of foster parents. The goal of foster care is to reunify um, uh, children with their parents. That happens about 50% of the time, approximately. Um, but there are really foster parents that, that 
need to be there to, to provide a safe living home for those kids, either permanently or until they go back to their parents. So it's something we really need to, to support um, people in doing as a, as a community. Kristen Pratt with us on the leadership team for Foster More, talking all things foster care crisis, this urgent need for supportive workplaces to empower potential foster parents. Of course, uh, we know how important it is even here in our own backyard of West Michigan. So there we are. We want to ask uh, for the action item. Those who are thinking of becoming a foster parent, where do we start with the process? How do we encourage employers to join the initiative? Yes, so if you'd like to become a foster parent, you can go to fostermore.org. There's a tab on our website that says Become a Foster Parent, and we can connect you with someone um, in your local area, um, and you can learn more about that. And if you are interested in having your business become a foster-friendly workplace, which is providing paid time off, a minimum of three weeks paid time off for someone who wants to become a foster parent, you can also go to our website, and there's a tab that says Workplace Pet Pledge. You can sign up to learn more, and we'd be happy to discuss it with you. And I imagine like anything in life, you get out of what you give. That's right, exactly. Very rewarding and uh, very necessary. Thank you for that. All right, uh, go get them. Continue spreading the word uh, as we are here on behalf of Foster More, Kristen Pratt. Thank you. Thank you, Shelley. Are you ready to add fun, challenge, and exploration to your world? It's the tagline of the work by my next guest, Jennifer Strong McConaughey, storied history and endurance sports with a comprehensive overview of the ins and outs of multi-sport, is in her latest work, Go Multi-Sport. So we'll obviously we'll talk about the benefits, including how about adding longevity to your years as an athlete. I'm taking notes. Jennifer, good morning to you. Good morning. Wow, ultra runner, mountaineer, marathon swimmer, distance paddler, and multi-sport athlete. Uh, Come to Michigan. We have plenty of uh, 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 sports uh, for your interest, I'm sure. I want to. I really do. Thank you for you. Of course, go far, how endurance sports help you win at life. Uh, But now, go multi-sports. And obviously, uh, I like to talk to those who practice what they preach. How do you define multi-sport? So multi-sport, if you kind of think about a triathlon, a triathlon, the three sports of swimming, biking, and running, is the original multi-sport. But in the multi-sport that I write about and talk about in this book, it's even more. It's adding more human-powered, that's how I have my definition of a human-powered sport, and combining at least two, um, and there's many more as you could come up with, together into one outing that might be similar one of three different sports, but in multi-sport, it wouldn't have to be swimming, biking, and running. And it's also kind of like an adventure race where you have the variety of navigation or obstacles or off-road versions like mountain biking or trail running or um, lake swimming. So really thinking about um, what what is a human-powered sport So we could get into more paddling of stand-up paddling or canoeing or kayaking. And um, I get into lots more iterations, but really just thinking of of, of a triathlon um, with more sports. Nice. Who is the target audience for Go Multi-Sport? Is it ever too late to, well, be evolved in more than one activity? 
It, it sure isn't. So the target audience is for people who, who are, are athletes who are looking to do more. If you've done some races, some run races, or you've done some triathlons, or you've done some biking, and you're wanting to know, what should I train for next? Should I just do marathon after marathon? Or maybe I should try multi-sport, where I go for really long distances if I want to. You don't have to. But instead of just doing one sport, you combine lots of sports together. There's options for extreme athletes, but in the book, there's also options for people who want to define a multi-sport as simple as going to the gym and running on the treadmill and then doing a weights class and maybe then hopping in the, the pool and swimming um, or walking to the gym or biking to the gym and doing an activity there. So you don't have to be an extreme athlete. There's lots of fun ways to do multi-sport if you want to uh, do the extreme extreme versions, but you can also just apply it to your life um, it, during your day. If, if you want to break up your workouts and do one in the morning, one in the afternoon, and one in the evening, in a way that could also kind of be a multi-sport because you're doing different modes of activity that are human-powered during your day or however you want to define it, your week, your time. So it's, it's really for people who want um, a new challenge and a new way to work out that's not just uh, the traditional boring uh, options. Yes. Again, uh, you write, don't just go hard, go multi-sport. You, uh, an outward bound graduate, knowing uh, obviously what uh, we're talking about. I want to get to this uh, tease that I presented, uh, another reason to participate um, in anything that gets us moving, adding longevity to our years as an athlete. Is there science behind this? There absolutely is. So uh, for those of us who have spent years in it running uh, marathons and ultras and triathlons, we are no strangers to injuries that can come up, overuse injuries. And so multi-sport gives you something else to do uh, to help prevent some of those overuse injuries. Uh, it's real easy to fall into the trap of just training for run after run after run or marathon after marathon after marathon. Um, but when you add in additional sports, you're cross-training and you're keeping uh, your, those, those runners' knees um, from continuing to break down. And it actually can build strength um, in, different, in different muscle areas and help you stay um, injury-free by training your entire body and trying different sports. Um, and it also, so that, that's sort of like the technical longevity, but it gives you a longevity and a sense that you're inspired because you want to go out and try rollerblading or roller skiing or try that new form of kayaking on whitewater instead of flat water. Mm. And so you have this longevity of your mindset of you're always wanting to, instead of being like, oh, it's another Wednesday, I've got to go do my long run, you can think of, hey, it's another week, I get to go try these new sports, it snowed this weekend, I get to go try cross-country skiing or do that. And so it really adds um, a fun excitement to life that can help you stay motivated for yeah. a long time. Wonderful. Again, go multi-sport, add fun, challenge, and exploration to your world at any stage in life. Jennifer Strong, McConaughey with us. Just a couple minutes left. Again, you talk about finding ways to get outside, attuning to your complete health. And you mentioned uh, maybe not everyone has time to get out three times a day, but how does one become active when life is full? 
Well, you use the time that you have. And so what the great thing about multi-sport is say you only have an hour. You can fit, um, you can do a, a traditional um, run bike in that hour. Um, or you could do a bike to your yoga class and, and do that. And that's a human powered way to get there. And so if you have a long weekend or a holiday and you have that extra time, you can come up with a 12 hour multi-sport with five different sports. And I have some examples in the book about that. Or if you're busy that weekend and you just don't have the time for it, um, I can could, I could talk about how you can um, go out on an evening after an eight-inch snow and um, take your snowshoes down to the river, then tow your pack raft behind you and hop on and go for a paddle and make it back home within one or two hours uh, to feed dinner to your children. I think uh, uh, that sealed the deal on that. How does one get started, Jennifer? Well, you just get started by thinking about what interests you. What sports do you want to try? Uh, you can also use the weather. So if it's summertime, and, and I know up where in your area, lots of water, lots of lakes. So start with um, open water swimming. Start with different modes of paddling. Um, if you're traveling, try a raft trip. If you're heading to Alaska, um, look into dog sledding. We even have ways that we can include animals and children and parents and family members um, so it's not just about you. It's about building your team and including others with you. All right. So we'll continue our read, Go Multisport. How do we find out more information? You can go to multisportbook.com and uh, find out more about me and the book. And it's also available worldwide from your favorite bookseller. So anywhere from Amazon to Barnes & Noble uh, to your local bookshop. Great. Keep doing Kansas. What's your next uh, feat, as they say? Well, I really, uh, I, I do love the water and I do love swimming. So hopefully this summer holds some more marathon swimming uh, for me. And then, of course, more, more multi-sports uh, on the weekends going out combining. Um, um, I did a lot of snow biking uh, mm. when we had snow over, over the last few months here. So just looking for more ways to try new things. Appreciate it. Jennifer Strong McConaughey, again, go multi-sport. Thank you. Thank you, Shelley. Come 7.30 on Friday, February 23rd, my next guest returns to reprise a magnificent program for a live in-person audience. That person, Chi Young, violinist, described as charming, charismatic, and of course uh, ready to uh, grace our stage at the Froenthal Theater, of course, on this 23rd. Chi Young, on the line, good morning to you. Good morning, how are you? I am doing fine. Uh, do you practice your violin every day? Yes, I do. It's like, you know, everybody going to work, you know, Monday through Friday, except that I usually, you know, perform on weekends. And so, yeah, but I mean, I don't think, even think of it as work, really. It's just, I love it. I love my violin. I love practicing it. And I love the music, so... Well, uh, and uh, obviously you love what you, you do, and certainly as do we, because we, uh, according to my notes, we're bringing you back in uh, a roundabout way. I think uh, I'll put our hats on uh, uh, bringing back 2020. It looks like the West Michigan Symphony was the first orchestra in the U.S. to return to a stage via a virtual concert series, and you were featured. Ji Young? I remember that very fondly, and of course it meant so much to me that, you know, because everything was completely stopped, as you remember. Mm. And 
So getting work with West Michigan Symphony meant a great deal. And um, I'm thrilled to come back and, you know, meet everybody in person. I'll give all the details. Let's talk about, uh, of course, what we will hear. But before that, I still want to put the uh, the person to you. When did you pick up your, your first violin? And tell us a little bit about you, Chi Young. Sure. Um, I started playing the piano first when I was, I think, about like five years old. And then I picked, I switched to violin because there was only one piano in the house. And my oldest sister, um, yes. I'm the fourth of the four children, the youngest. My oldest sister was already an accomplished young pianist at the time, and she was preparing for her competitions, and there was just not enough time for me to practice on it. Mm-hmm. Or my mother reminded me, she said, you will not get off the bench. So I had to force you off the piano. <laughs> nice. And then I looked at my other sister who was practicing the violin, but in tears, and she really wanted to become a ballerina. So I made a little pact with her, and I said, why don't I practice the violin for you? And so that was when I was six years old, and Never looked back since. <laughs> nice. Thank you for doing that, or we wouldn't be seeing you Friday, February 23rd. What have been some highlights thus far in your life? Well, I mean, coming to America was probably the biggest highlight when I was 13 years old and arriving in New York to study at Juilliard mm. with um, Dorothy Valet. And I had wonderful teachers and, you know, playing with the New York Philharmonic at the Young People's Concert when I was 14 years old. Um, you know, that was like cu- culture shock at the same time. I remember specifically that concert because I was more worried about being interviewed on stage after my performance wow. <laughs> because my English wasn't that great. You know, only it had been barely a year. No, it was nine months after I had come to America. So that was really fun. Um, since then, I played at the White House for the president mm. um, and, um, you know, winning competition and having management, commercial management, like Opus 3, um, and helping my, you know, career and just traveling the world and making CDs and, make you know, making contact with one of conductors like Scott Speck. I've known Scott yes. for years. And so it's such a joy, and he's been just so wonderful and incredibly supportive all these years. So, you know, you never forget a, a great friend, you know. Yes, yes, our music director, Scott Speck, again, West Michigan Symphony. You returning for this groundbreaking Four Seasons program, Charming and Charismatic, you des- are described, Chi Young, of course, that is Friday, February 23rd. So, yes, let's get into what we hear. This will be, uh, r- remind me, a, a reprise of, of the program we heard in 2020? Yes. So um, in 2020, you know, um, I was scheduled to perform, and we, I think, I don't know, is it called Four Seasons or both Vivaldi and Tiantola mm. or Eight Seasons? I'm not quite sure. But it's basically you get to hear me both first half and the second half. You know, usually when the orchestra brings in a soloist, soloist will make an appearance either either half, either the first or the second half. But in this concert, I'll be just about playing the whole concert, and and we'll be sort of playing, going back in time to Baroque era to play Vivaldi one season, and then coming to current season um, playing tango music. So it will be really fun and. 
it's um and I play without music, so it <sighs> will be it's a lot of fun though because it's challenging and you know it gets so many butterflies in my stomach before Good. the concert. But once you're on stage and and as the audience members will see that um, everybody has such important part because it's a reduced um, string orchestra and uh, with a harpsichord. And um, so it will be not as many people on stage, but we have to work extra hard to make, you know, ourselves sound great and just be part of it. And it is so much fun. Um, and Scott, it was Scott yes. Beck. Um, Scott Beck, right. And he had actually suggested this eight seasons program uh, more than 10 years ago when he invited me to play with his uh, one of many other orchestras, Chicago Philharmonic. And um, so I said, well, I'm not, I've done both pieces, but, and I memorized both of them, but I've never quite done them at the same time, especially alternating the seasons. I mean, alternating the composers, you know, you start with Vivaldi and then doing the Piazzolla and go back to Vivaldi and Piazzolla. So I said, sure, why not? Let's give it a try. And we had so much fun doing it. And so I've been doing it. I, I mean, that's the only way I play eight seasons now. <laughs> nice. Again, Chi Young with us. You'll hear her on the 23rd of February that evening. It's a Friday, returning to reprise a magnificent program for this live in-person audience. Of course, for Wenthal Theater, you can't beat under the direction of music director Scott Speck. And we'll keep you busy that week. It looks like uh, you will be performing uh, 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 for a master class, a student master class on that Wednesday, and then a free downtown lunch and learn on that Thursday. So uh, um, in addition to a solo recital program at the block, I hope that's uh, all in your list of things to do yeah it's almost like you know concerts every day i'm i'm in in um Muskegon, so it will be fun keep you busy yep <laughs> are you okay with a description of charming and charismatic of the pieces yes uh it, well you are described as a charming charismatic violinist uh, so little birdies have been talking about you i think that's a compliment oh Thank you so much. That is a very kind of you, and I will try to bring the best charms and there's charisma on stage. But absolutely, the, the music will help me, and I am gonna be bringing two dresses, so you know mm. the people won't be bored with the same seeing the same dress both half. I don't. I think that's the least of of what we uh, uh, what we are are uh, being troubled with. It's the sound, and of course your performance, and uh, obviously the whole symphony behind you as well. How do we find out more about your work, Chi Young? Well, you could also find my YouTube channel, and also I'm I'm on social media. You know, and Facebook there's a fan page with my name, Chi Young, and also on Instagram. So. And I think I'm on Spotify, Apple Music, something like that. So if you Google me or if you tell Alexa to play Chion, I think Alexa will play. So I'd probably not say that on the phone now because my Alexa might think that I'm calling her. <laughs> it's all good. You're charming, charismatic. You do, as a violinist, return to West Michigan Symphony for this groundbreaking Four Seasons program. Chi Young, of course, that's Friday, February 23rd, westmichigansymphony.org for your tickets. All right, have fun. Uh, looks like uh, we will open you, welcome you with opening arms come the 23rd and before. Thank you, Chi Young. Thank you, Shelley.